0: be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up. We welcome you to the service of ordered worship on this Christ the King Sunday. The liturgy, music, and homily are offered for our gathered congregation here in Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe at WB. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written and emailed responses, your decisions about forms of ministry in our midst, and as the Spirit moves, come Sunday, your presence with us in worship. Today we listen for the Gospel of Truth under the theme, message, and title of Te Deum, our sermon brought today by Brother Larry Whitney, our university chaplain for community life. With Charles Wesley, we strive to unite the two so long disjoined, learning and vital piety. This is the day the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
1: Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. On this Christ the King Sunday, we remember that Jesus charged us to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. Therefore, let us turn away from sin and turn to Christ the King, silently confessing our sins as the choir sings the Kyrie. We believe that thou, O Christ, shall come to be our judge. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God.
0: A lesson from the Revelation according to St. John the Divine, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loves us and freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us to be a kingdom. Priests serving his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The word of the Lord.
2: Please join me in Psalm 93 with the antiphon. The Lord is robed, he is girded with strength. He has established the world, it shall never be moved. Your throne is ever established from of old, you are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their roaring. More majestic than the thunders of mighty waters, more majestic than the waves of the sea, Majestic on high is the Lord. Your decrees are very sure. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Please rise as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of our gospel.
3: Jesus Christ according to St. John, chapter 18, verses 33-37. through 37. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated.
1: May we pray. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. All the earth doth worship thee, the Father everlasting. To thee all angels cry aloud, the heavens and all the powers therein. To thee cherubim and seraphim continually do cry. Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. Heaven and earth are full of the majesty of thy glory. The glorious company of the apostles praise thee. The goodly fellowship of the prophets praise thee. The noble army of martyrs praise thee. The holy church throughout all the world doth acknowledge thee, the Father of an infinite majesty, thine honorable, true, and only Son, also the Holy Ghost, the Comforter. Thou art the King of glory, O Christ. Thou art the everlasting Son of the Father. When thou tookest upon thee to deliver man, Thou didst not abhor the virgin's womb. When Thou hadst overcome the sharpness of death, Thou didst open the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Thou sittest at the right hand of God in the glory of the Father. We believe that Thou shalt come to be our judge. We therefore pray Thee, help Thy servants, whom thou hast redeemed with thy precious blood. Make them to be numbered with thy saints in glory everlasting. O Lord, save thy people and bless thine heritage. Govern them and lift them up forever. Day by day we magnify thee and we worship thy name ever. World without end. Vouchsafe, O Lord, to keep us this day without sin. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. O Lord, let thy mercy lighten upon us as our trust is in thee. O Lord, in thee have I trusted. Let me never be confounded. Amen. The great hymn of the Church known as the Te Deum is perhaps the greatest Christian hymn of praise ever penned. It is certainly the oldest, still in regular usage, attributed variously to Saints Ambrose, Augustine, and Hilary, and to Nicetus, Bishop of Reminacea in any case dating it to the 4th century. The text, in any of myriad settings, musically, is frequently programmed in worship services that extol the greatness of God as reflected in the greatness of some human personage. The election of a pope, the consecration of a bishop, or the canonization of a saint are all highly appropriate occasions for a te deum, and it has been known to be used on secular occasions as well, such as the announcement of a peace treaty or the coronation of a king or queen. You may be interested to know, particularly if you are Catholic, that a plenary indulgence is available if you are present in the recitation or solemn chant of the Te Deum on New Year's Eve. Given the many images of the kingship of Christ in the Te Deum, with attendant symbols of judge, governor, and lord, it is also highly appropriate to sing this great hymn today, on Christ the King Sunday. Thanks be to God for liturgically sensitive church musicians. Indeed, for the offertory today, the Marsh Chapel Choir, under the direction of Dr. Scott Alan Jarrett and with Mr. Justin Thomas Blackwell at the organ, will offer a setting of the Te Deum hymn by Franz Joseph Haydn. Commissioned by Empress Marie Therese, wife of Franz I of Austria, this particular setting is notable for being an entirely choral work, lacking in the virtuosic solo lines characteristic of Haydn, and for its setting in the key of C major, often associated with music for great feasts of the church. Furthermore, this setting is in the hallmark form of the classical era, namely the concerto, with two sprightly passages surrounding a central, slow movement. Okay. End of music history lesson. What does any of this have to do with anything? The Te Deum Te is textually a hymn of praise, and this has deep resonances on this day when we extol Christ as king. The Feast of Christ the King is celebrated interdenominationally among Catholics and Protestants on the last Sunday of the Christian year, which is to say the Sunday before the first Sunday of Advent. That should tell you what's coming next week. Furthermore, Christ as King has deep resonances with the Eastern Orthodox symbol of Christos Pantocrator, which may be translated as Christ Almighty or Christ in Judgment, and is depicted here at Marsh Chapel in our rose window at the front of the sanctuary. Praise is, ultimately, the most appropriate response of subjects to their rulers. This is both because rulers provide so many benefits to their subjects, and because rulers are, in their very nature, majestic and glorious, and thus deserving of praise. It is little wonder that in the pre-Christian Roman Empire, emperors were understood to be gods. When Christianity came along, the Judaic emphasis on the sovereignty of God over against all earthly temporal powers meant that emperors, kings, and other rulers could no longer be gods in their own right, but could nevertheless rule by divine right. Of course, this also meant that God could, in theory, and according to the historical record apparently in practice, withdraw the divine favor of a particular ruler and bestow it upon another. This is how you get changes in dynasties in medieval European feudalism. Kingship in Christendom, as it turns out, has its ups and downs. Jesus certainly knew about the ups and downs of kingship, as evidenced by the texts read today from the Gospel according to St. John and from the Revelation to St. John. On behalf of Dean Hill, allow me to remind us that these are not the same John. In the passage from Revelation, we get the upside of the story. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of Christians and, in fact, ruler of the kings of the earth, i.e., king of kings. Here is not the historical Jesus, but rather the cosmic figure of Christos Pantocrator, Christ who rides out of eternity on the clouds in judgment of the tribes of the earth. In the Gospel of John, we get the downside. It turns out that being a king is a significant part of what got Jesus killed at the hands of the rulers of his day. The problem, it turns out, is that Jesus finds himself out of his own kingdom, and he is not the king of the world in which he finds himself. But this has not stopped people from attributing kingship to him, making the rulers of this world highly anxious. Let this be a lesson to you kings out there. If you are a king, stay put in your kingdom. I would hazard to guess that many of you are feeling quite ambivalent about all of this talk of kingship only a few short weeks after we in the United States of America have participated in that hallmark of our democratic republic, namely electing our leaders to office. Indeed, what could the notion of kingship possibly mean for us? in the land that rebelled against King George III. We noted earlier that kings are to be praised both for the benefits they bestow on their subjects and for their innate majesty and glory. These notions are surely nonsensical amidst the logic of our democratic republic. Surely, here in the USA we believe that people are personally responsible and should pull themselves up by their bootstraps, so that they are not dependent on the beneficence of government. And, recently disclosed improprieties of a certain general turned spymaster only serve to remind us that our leaders are all too frequently failed to achieve even the standards of basic morality, let alone ever being considerable in terms of glory and majesty. Or do we? Do we really believe in rugged individualism and the fallibility of our leaders? Or in our heart of hearts do we aspire to something more like the kingship model? Hanging out in stained glass toward the rear of Marsh Chapel on the pulpit side is the stentorian statesman Abraham Lincoln. He made it into stained glass here because he fulfilled the abolitionist vision of the founders of Boston University through his work to abolish slavery. The recently released feature-length film, Lincoln, chronicles his political machinations and negotiations eventually leading to the passage of the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, outlawing slavery and involuntary servitude. The Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C dedicated in 1922, was designed by Henry Bacon in the form of a Greek Doric temple containing a large, seated sculpture of Lincoln by Daniel Chester French, and inscriptions from Lincoln's Gettysburg and Second Inaugural Addresses. In some states, Lincoln's birthday is celebrated as a holiday… or should I say, Holy Day. So, is Abraham Lincoln a king? Applying a strict definition from political theory, certainly not. The new film is based in part on Doris Kearns Goodwin's biography of Lincoln entitled Team of Rivals – The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. The title of the book makes it clear that Lincoln was not a king in the political sense, as it is his ability to get things done amidst competing interests and despite the limits of presidential power that makes Lincoln exceptional. But in other respects, Lincoln may best be interpreted as a king. His rhetorical skill inspired hearts across divisions of race, gender, class, and religion. His assassination made him a martyr and bestowed upon him mythical status in the United States and abroad. Looking back across time, Lincoln may be understood as a king in the two senses outlined above. He achieved great benefit for his people by virtue of his political skill, particularly for slaves, but for the United States as a whole also through his projects of reconstruction and vision for reintegration of the divided union. And his soaring rhetoric and towering stature have been imprinted on the American imagination as signs of majesty and glory, as evidenced in stained glass, in film and in monument. There are other figures in U.S. history who might be considered under this rubric of kingship—George Washington, Franklin Roosevelt, Martin Luther King, Jr. It is not the case that any of these men was perfect or otherwise unambiguous. However, the particular focus afforded by the lenses of history has left us with visions of them that are truly praiseworthy. I wonder if, political predilections for democratic order aside, there might not be something far deeper in the human condition and psyche that desires a king to rule over us. I have a sneaking suspicion that there is, and that the Te Deum text points to this something deeper in the symbols of judgment, governing, and lordship. Judgment is the measurement of the difference between the ideal of grace and the reality of sin. Governance is the ordering of relations such that grace might be maximized and sin minimized. Lordship is the power, power to make changes based on judgments and power to bring about rightly ordered relationships. Judicial, legislative, executive. Far from the supposed American ideal that we do not need government because we are self-reliant and because governments are made up of other humans just as fallen as we ourselves, the Te Deum gives voice to that part of us that desires just what we proclaim to deny. Peter Berger, university professor emeritus here at Boston University, wrote 40-some-odd years ago about religion as masochistic. By this, he means that in religious life, we give ourselves over to something else, something greater, that can in some way affect an overarching meaning amidst a sea of seeming meaninglessness otherwise. Indeed, that is at least one of the things that we do when we gather together on Sunday mornings and is the principal purpose of praise. We give ourselves over to God, who benefits us by providing us with the sense of meaning, order, and purpose, and who is majestic and glorious and therefore praiseworthy. This probably seems at least somewhat okay in relation to God. Much more troubling for most of us, however, is the fact that we essentially do the same thing with government. We give ourselves over to a state that we believe can guarantee us some benefit and that seems to us in some way to be glorious and majestic. This is the social contract. In the case of monarchies, that glory and majesty is connected to the divine right of royalty. In the democratic model, the glory and majesty of government derives from the glory and majesty of the human person, perhaps instilled by God. The problem with a truly democratic government is that in order to fulfill our desire for kingship in terms of justice, governance, and lordship, 100 percent of the people must be 100 percent responsible 100 percent of the time. In a monarchy, only one person must be 100% responsible 100% of the time, but if he or she screws it up, or at least if people find out that he or she screwed it up, it's all them. The problem is that there has never been a single human being, let alone a whole population of them, who has been able to be 100% responsible 100% of the time. As the Apostle to the Gentiles tells us in the Epistle to the Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. God. Modern democratic republics have tried to mediate this problem by allowing for minimal levels of irresponsibility that can be counterbalanced by the checks and balances built into the governance model. Sadly, as evidenced by the general-turned-spymaster mentioned earlier, we seem not to actually be able to tolerate the minimal levels of irresponsibility our system of government seeks to afford. We aspire to more. We aspire to perfection. We seek a guarantee of order and meaning over-against our uncertainty of each other and ourselves. This past summer, we heard a series of sermons on apocalyptic. The apocalyptic worldview that says that the guarantee of order and meaning is not possible in this world but is readily available in the next is one Christian response to the problem of irresponsible government. Another is the shift from the divinity of emperors themselves to their ruling rather by divine right, which could be taken away. A third is the perspective that the image of God in human nature is obscured by sin, thus negating the possibility of fully effective human institutions. In all of these cases, the Christian witness is that it is God who is our guarantee. Ultimately, it is God who is our King who judges us with perfect justice, governs us with perfect wisdom, and rules over us with perfect power, and so who is glorious and majestic. No worldly power could possibly aspire to God's perfection. And so today, Christ the King Sunday, we give over our sinful and broken selves to God, who alone can help us, can save us, can redeem us, can lift us up forever, and open the kingdom of heaven to us. Te Deum. Amen.
4: Friends, we pause now to take the time to offer our prayers to God. You may remain standing, sit, kneel, or come to the altar rail as according to your tradition. And now, please join me in singing, Lead Me, Lord. gracious God, in you we live and move and have our being. You have blessed us with the gift of life and a world to live in. In you we are blessed and we offer praise and thanks. Empower and strengthen the witness of your church throughout the world, that true to its calling it may embody your radical and boundless love. Strengthen all the members of the body of Christ. Grant that our service and witness in this and every land may be full of faith and love. You are the source of our life, O God. May we embrace our lives and the lives of others with courage and compassion, unafraid of joy and pain, sickness and health. May your care be made known in our care. May those who govern the nations of the world use their authority with wisdom, kindness, and peacefulness. Awaken in them a thirst for justice that embodies your care for this earth and for the human community. Rescue those who suffer poverty, injustice, or oppression. Open our hearts to hear and quicken in us the fire to respond in love. Grant comfort, healing, and release to those who suffer illness, distress, or grief. Awaken in us boundless compassion, and use us as agents of loving-kindness. In your love and compassion, hear the prayers of your people. Enliven us by your Spirit to live into the fullness of your reign. We pray through Jesus our life and our hope. And now we join together in saying the prayer that your Son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven,
0: By God's grace and somehow you have made your way to the nave of Mars Chapel by grace and somehow you have made your way to the listenership of this radio broadcast we are so glad you are with us your attention to the gospel the preaching of the gospel means everything to us we ask you to take a moment now to use the red pads in the pews so that you may note your name and we may contact you further if you so desire and you may be able following the postlude to greet one another and pause naming each other in person john lauren beth bob it's good to see you this is an auspicious sunday on which to connect with marsh chapel for next sunday we enter the beginning of the christian year in advent you'll notice in the bulletin several opportunities for education and fellowship, for students in Bible study, for the student community and others in retreat, for the women of the chapel to visit the Sloan House. And next Sunday, Rachel Cape, our Director of Hospitality, will be be gathering families with children for our luncheon and then a December moment of celebration. Especially next Sunday, we have our second in a series of four Bach Cantata Sundays. I will be here at 9 45 a.m. We gather the whole community at 9 45 a.m. And when we gather, Dr. Jarrett, what shall we hear next Sunday?
3: Well, the works of Bach, uh, the cantatas in particular, are miracles of musical homiletics. And uh, if you haven't been to the Bach experience before, mark your calendar for next week and come with us We'll be here in the nave with the chapel choir and the Collegium, and we'll talk about next week's cantata, Baket Aufruf von Stimme, which is probably my favorite cantata of all time, number 140, and it's uh, one of the most joyful um, and most fun cantatas that I know, and I'm excited to uh, perform it next week in the context of our liturgy and to work on it with you in the morning session. This afternoon, there's another opportunity for you join us right after service uh, uh, for the second rehearsal of the Thurman Choir. We begin downstairs at 1230 looking at the repertoire that we'll sing for Lessons and Carols in three weeks and then for Christmas Eve. If you didn't come last time, you can come today. It's not too late and we'll see you soon.
0: Thank you so very much, Scott. We invite you to respond as a gathered community in praise of God to the gospel with a generous gift either from afar or here, as the ushers now wait upon us for the morning offering. As they do, we continue in praise as we listen to Haydn's Te Deum.
4: God of infinite majesty, receive these gifts and help thy servants. In thee we trust. In the name of thine honorable, true, and only Son we pray. Amen.
1: Dearly beloved, as we transition to the season of Advent, we are reminded that the kingdom of heaven is indeed at hand. And so life is short, and we do not have too much time to gladden the hearts of those who walk the way with us. So be swift to love and make haste to be kind. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit abide and remain with you now and always. Amen. Amen.